regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form conversations with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Itat R, the CEO and co-founder of Treeverse, the company behind Legabest, which is an open source platform that delivers resilience and manageability to object storage-based tablets. She receives her PhD in mathematics from Tel Aviv University in the field of optimization in graph theory. In our previously less several engineering organization, most recently as a CTO at SimilarWeb. So Inat, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. So let's start our conversation by discussing a bit about your educational background. I saw that you got your uh, BS, MS, and PhD all in mathematics from Tel Aviv University in the 90s and early 2000s. How could you uh, describe your overall undergrad and graduate experience? Well, it was great. I think it was the first time I actually enjoyed school because I'm, I'm very dyslectic and it's very hard for me to read. So actually, the only thing I can succeed in academically is mathematics. And uh, university is the first place where the only thing I was studying uh, was mathematics. I actually started with engineering and I also have a degree in engineering, but very quickly I shifted most of my uh, courses to mathematics uh, in the first degree. And then, of course, the second and the third were in mathematics. So it was a very happy occasion for me to be able to focus on something that doesn't require any reading. Mm -hmm. And as the years uh, went by, there was more research and less studying in classes, which also suited me very well. I enjoyed very much thinking about difficult problems and just lying uh, on the sofa, looking at the ceiling and claiming that I was working mm -hmm. uh, and thinking about uh, the, the very deep problems that I was trying to solve. So uh, I had a very good experience with that. Mm -hmm. Although I knew... Um, from the get-go that I wasn't going to be a professor and I wasn't looking for an academic career. I didn't think I was talented enough as a mathematician, but I really enjoyed learning. Yeah, out of curiosity, what are some of the uh, like favorite branch within mathematics that you enjoy learning about? So I love probability. Uh, anything to do with probability is simply great. It's just a whole new world of axioms that you can play around with. Let's say that the, uh, conceptually, there are two really big jumps, at least that was I felt when I was learning. So the first is, is actually calculus, the mathematical way. I remember that as being a very exciting experience. And then uh, the next level of abstraction that is very exciting is measure theory, and then probability that comes out of it or alongside it. So I was very excited about that and the implementations that it had in the world. And later on, I combined it with the graph theory and uh, algorithms on graphs. Yeah, let's discuss a bit further on that, that combination and uh, between probability and graph theory, right? So 
I guess based on my research, uh, PhD thesis focus on developing approximation algorithms for clustering problems. So yeah, can you just briefly maybe go over the motivation and the empirical work being done for this uh, dissertation? Uh, yeah, so there was hardly any empirical work done. There was very little, but the, the inspiration to the problems that we were solving came from the jobs that I was taking as a student, as a very uh, junior algorithms developer. So uh, one of the problems I was solving is called capacitated vertex covering. So there's vertex covering, very known problem in computer science. And we had it capacitated in the sense that we put a capacity on the vertices that uh, were covered in a way that allowed to cover them more or required to cover them more than once. And the inspiration to this optimization problem came from a company I worked in where the medical device that they were developing, I won't go into the details because it's very deep and long, but that medical device actually required a capacitated vertex covering problem in order to analyze its results in an optimal way. Same happened with the later on working on weights to regular or to classical clustering models. For example, K-min-sum. So K-min-sum is a very classical clustering problem where you want to minimize the distance between the clusters, the, the elements within the clusters that you create. Mm -hmm. And what we allowed is for you not to cluster all the nodes in the graph, but there would be a penalty for each one of the nodes that you decide not to put in a cluster. And that is actually a very realistic scenario if you think about location problems, for example, locating hospitals. So you can say, okay, I would allow someone to be further from a hospital, but there would be a penalty from an insurance perspective, for example. I see. Yeah. Thanks a lot for sharing some of the details of this uh, thesis. And so you mentioned like the reason you work on this problem is, is because of the, the work you've done as an algorithm developer, why you're still a PhD student, right? And I believe that during that time, more specifically, you spend time working at Confusion, right? Which is a company that provides IT solution and services. Out of curiosity, how do you balance like, you know, working there and for that company and, and also like being a PhD student at the same time? How does your schedule look like? And what, what are some of the learning that you get from both working um, on a real world problem and kind of doing academic projects? Yeah, so working while you are working on your dissertation is pretty common in Israel. A lot of students in Israel work. Yeah, and I got this really amazing job in uh, Compugen. Compugen was a company that everyone really wants to work with for, and, and they had this very difficult uh, exam to uh, check if you are suitable for them. Uh, so I was very proud when I was accepted to work as a student at Compugen. And I just worked and studied and I had 16 hours work and study days. It was very intense, but it was also very, very satisfying. This was the first place I ever coded in. Before that, I never coded anything that was more than just a few hundred lines. And here it was really implementing algorithms. I moved from C to C++. Mainly, I learned from really the best people how to develop algorithms using best practices that are used in code in general. It's not very common to see a bunch of mathematicians that really adhere to work processes or that ensure quality when using data. And years later, I still reference to the things that I've studied in Compugen uh, when I worked with other people that did not know those best practices. 
Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I get that's like really relevant to, you know, a lot of data practitioners these days, right? Who doesn't have a, like a strong CS background, for example, I think having those fundamental engineering and, and development skill best practices, like you said. You know, at the end of the day, it's, it's common sense, but you need to have a, a real focus on quality. And I think that that was the uh, origin of those good practices that were uh, invented, I guess, in Compugen. And they were a very good foundation for me later on. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, let's go into a tour of your career. So after finishing your PhD, you start your industry career as a senior algorithm developer at Flash Networks back in 2005. What are some of the projects that you contributed to during your time there? Flash Networks was a very fun experience. I was responsible for an algorithm that predicted the behavior of users on the internet. The thing was that back in the day, the cellular networks weren't strong enough to actually provide good user experience. And the way the operators tried to solve that problem was by, or at least the way that flash networks was trying to help operators solve this problem, was by caching some of the pages that you would probably be going to next on your cell. So prefetching them and caching them so that when you browse, you would have a better experience of browsing around in the pages that you uh, usually browse in. Mm -hmm. uh, so the algorithm I developed was the algorithm that looked at the history of the browsing of users mm -hmm. and tried to deduce dynamically, of course, what the next five pages they would be browsing to because that was the capacity of pages that could have been cached on the client side. And the algorithm was developed and tested, uh, of course, using anonymized data. And it was then implemented in Java by a great team of software developers that I've learned a lot from. And it was used by operators in, Umer in Europe. So it was then an end-to-end -end implementation from the idea of the product all the way to seeing it actually helping users. Mm -hmm. And it was also the first time that I was exposed to uh, something that everyone else, I guess, know, but it's amazing to see it when you look at Clickstream. So much of the traffic is porn, probably 90%. <laughs> Not that I know what pages it was, but it was classified as, a, <laughs> as porn. I was about to ask a question, but you already kind of alluded to that. But like, yeah, besides that point, What 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 is something you learn about user behavior in the internet back in the mid 2010s? Like, I suppose that is like pretty early days of social network, right? And I'm just curious, like, what are some of the other you know things that people pay attention to, you know, in the internet during that period? Yeah, there was a little social networks, but from what I remember, a lot was operational. So people were buying tickets or looking at government information. Mm or of course news, mm. but I, yeah. I have to admit, I, I don't recall very much except for the, the very funny part about porn. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You then spent a subsequent five years at Corelix, initially as a chief scientist and then as the VP of uh, research and development. What was your proudest accomplishment at Corelix, either technically or organizationally? And also like what are some of the valuable lessons that you learned from 
are working with, I mean, this in this scenario, I, I believe Corlex working with capital markets clients, right? And, and so, yeah, I'm going to share some details on, on those challenges and learnings. Yes, so I started again with algorithms, but as the company grew and the opportunity presented itself, I was given also software developers to manage. So I found myself after two years in a position where I managed the entire R&D and I was responsible for delivering the product. And that, when you do it the first time, that is a very um, dramatic experience because being a VP R&D is not a simple position for everyone, anyone, anywhere. I think any R&D leader knows this. The best you can do is maybe do what is expected of you. Because the expectations are always high. It's very hard to explain to business people who know nothing about development why things are complex and when they should be complex and when they shouldn't. So uh, it's a very interesting challenge and I learned a lot from it. I think the greatest achievement for us as a team was to have our product at NASDAQ and in the New York Stock Exchange. That is an amazing feeling to have those names in your customer list and also to come visit them and stand in those huge offices over Manhattan. <laughs> so uh, for someone who is not from New York or not American, that is also a, a very nice experience. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the logos themselves, and I also learned about those organizations, the, the, the capital markets organizations, that I was expecting them to be way more conservative. So while demanding very high quality and uptime, mm -hmm. they were very bold in trying new technologies and acknowledging the value of very young and early products and adopting them and helping them grow. So uh, that was also an experience for me that later on I adopted when managing bigger R&D organizations to always look for new technologies and adopt them and help them grow and actually serve your business uh, to the best of their abilities. So being an early adopter is a huge advantage and it's a cultural mm -hmm. advantage. It's a state of mind that those organizations have. For sure. Thanks for sharing those uh, details. You brought up this interesting point that, you know, this couple of markets client require very high uptime, right? Which is like, the, the, I guess the speed and reliability of these algorithms are critical. Can you uh, maybe double click on that? Like algorithmically speaking, like how does that translate itself into like the design of these algorithms that your team had to develop? So it was more to the design of the software because uh, the way we were working, we developed not a high frequency trading algorithm, but rather a monitoring system for high frequency trading environments that uh, allowed the people responsible for the health of the high-frequency trading systems mm -hmm. to make sure that those systems were working properly. The challenge in these environments is that you can't really put a client on a machine and compete on resources with the algorithms because it's nanosecond uh, sensitive environment. I mean, I'm, I'm kidding with the nano, but you get the point. So low frequency is very high performance and you don't want anything else running on the machine. We were doing the monitoring offline by hooking to network data and analyzing it on the side. But once you have a good monitoring system, you rely on it and you can't have it go down or show the wrong data or be late with the data that it shows because you rely on it to operate your business properly. 
So this is where our challenge was, and it, and it revolved, the algorithms were very important from a performance, but mainly from a correctness point of view. But the software engineering was what needed to be adopted for the high availability. And it was nothing that was uh, not known. It was just the regular challenge of, you know, having running things active-active and making sure to synchronize them where there is, it's a data-intensive application. So data was written into databases. It was written into Postgres that we are kind of hacked in a way that made it more than it was. Uh, and then we had to bring it to be highly available in an active-active environment with all that it, what, that it means. And this is where cloud providers only started. So we did all that on our own, all the DevOps around that on our own, uh, per customer, right? Because it was enterprise software that was actually installed on-premise at the customer site. So uh, it's a big challenge and it's a, it's a big challenge to solve production issues remotely with limited access to, to your systems. But we did all that pretty successfully and we had those installations. We were adopted by the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange and many others. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. It was very interesting to hear the story of like for how the cloud actually do that and people actually have to cover all that infrastructure by yourself. Yeah, it seems like you experiencing that period, it allows you to, you know, even appreciate some of the little technologies at, at a higher level. And you also mentioned that as a VP of RD, obviously that there's like a change of like explaining to leadership about the value of engineering, right? And I also believe that you probably have to hire a lot of people into your department. During this period, during this transition from going in IC role into a, a manager role, what are some of the lessons that you learned in order to like hire the right engineering talent for your organization? Yeah, I think so. the first time I managed, I was horrible. <laughs> I mean, I brought results to the organization. But I was a very top-down manager. I identified, I used the talent of the people that, that worked with me, but not in the best. A lot of the cases, I was dictating the solutions. I was very stressed and I didn't listen. And I was very focused on the results. And I was less focused on the people and how they bring the result. And uh, over time, I learned that it's very important to be focused on the result, but you get to the result through focusing on what people can do to help you get to the results. And uh, it completely changed the way I managed over time. So uh, I learned from the people I managed how to help them succeed. And I turned, I listen more than I talk, if I can, <laughs> I try. So I think that was the lesson I learned in Corelix. And we'll probably talk about some of the leadership lessons later on in the chat when discussing Trivers. But before that, I want to talk about your five and a half years span as a CTO of SimilarWeb, which is a platform that gives a true 360-degree view of all digital activities across customers, prospect partners, and competition. Could you mind sort of unpacking how this SimilarWeb platform works? And furthermore, what are some of the unique data engineering challenges of building it? So we have perfect timing with this recording because today, similar web IPO, really? <laughs> a very successful, great IPO in the New York, New York Stock Exchange. So I'm very proud <laughs> that I have taken part in the journey of this very successful company. 
And what we were doing is actually fascinating. We were giving all this information that you have just mentioned about the digital world by getting behavioral data of a sample of users, a huge sample, okay, half a billion users, but just not necessarily a representative sample. And all our work revolved around, on the data side, revolved around taking this sample and extracting from it a good estimation of the behavior of the digital world. So we're talking about uh, six. So I started with five and then six and then seven and keeps on growing petabytes of data that needs to be analyzed using not uh, just one ML deep learning algorithm, but rather a very complex estimation system that required hundreds of jobs, Spark jobs to run in a quite complex DAG that provided this information. And uh, while throughout my entire career, I was responsible for uh, R&D organizations that delivered algorithms and delivered algorithms based on pretty big data, this was the first time I went through the process of using big data technologies, starting with Hadoop and MapReduce, moving to Spark, moving to Kafka, moving from HDFS to S3, and going on the cloud completely, because when I joined, we were uh, mostly on-prem. So all those journeys that we took as a company to scale when our data scaled, were just amazing. And I learned a lot from the people who actually, you know, I was the manager of starting with 40 people and ending with 200. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned from the experience of the people that I managed while moving through those technologies. It was a great journey and it is a, a very happy day to see it uh, continue as a public company today. Yeah, for sure. I was curious, can you maybe like share one or two use cases about how this platform kind of works for one of the clients if possible yeah i'm just trying to like wrap my mind how like a 360 degree view of a customer actually look like customer journey part of it let's take a simple metric so one of the metrics that SimilarWeb provides is an estimation of the visits to a website it just provides this information for all the websites in the world in a granularity of a day uh, a week 28 days calendar month, and so on. Of course, when you look at the website, it would make sense to look at the problem per country, because there would be a large difference between countries when you estimate things. And also, you don't expect to see significant cross-country traffic, although there is, it's not very big. So per country and per site, right? So we can isolate this or actually run concurrently on very many problems that are per country, per site. And this is how the data system worked. It divided the data according to that. And then the estimation algorithm worked. It's very hard without slides or a whiteboard to explain the full details. But that was the basic logic of the estimation. Just dividing it to this problem and then looking, maybe I can explain in very high level, looking at uh, the proportion of uh, users going into each and every website and then actually trying to account for the bias. And the way to estimate the bias came from 
a learning set. So we did have some supervised information that we could use, not on all the websites, but on some of them. And this helped us actually create those weights and uh, account for the bias in our panel of users that we did see information about. Yeah, thanks for sharing those technical details of that. And I guess also like another question that I'm curious to learn about is, well, what is the role of a CTO, you know, actually look like? You know, what, what are some of your like day-to-day responsibility as a CTO of the company? My title, my title was misleading. I was the VP of R&D. I managed the engineering organization. Mm-hmm. And I'll be happy to share, but it's, if you think of a CTO as only the person who is responsible for innovation, then that was not my job. I was responsible for innovation, but I was also responsible for delivering the product day-to-day. Mm-hmm. And the way I learned to manage, as we mentioned earlier, was as much as possible to do things uh, bottom-up. So new technologies, for example, came from the team. They wanted to adopt the technology because they thought it was helpful for their work. And then the DevOps team and the architecture form that we created assisted in, in helping people adopt new technologies and then showing the rest of the organization the technology is used so it would be adopted in other places within the R&D. But from some point, from some level of size of an organization, my job was to give my managers the context that they needed in order to take decisions and to explain to my colleagues and to the CEO of the company to communicate to them challenges or limitations or innovation that we can offer. So I think... A lot of the work revolved around people and communicating with people and making sure there is alignment around product R&D, sales product R&D, and within the R&D about technologies, methodologies of work, and of course, culture. Yeah, it seems like as you go up the career ladder, you know, you spend less time focused on technical challenges and more on Things like, you know, you mentioned people, processes, communication, culture. Yeah, you know, what, as I told you earlier, at some points in SimilarWeb, I was pushing for innovation because I wanted to be like those great organizations we mentioned earlier. So I would bring in new startups that had ideas that I thought were relevant for SimilarWeb and its product. Mm-hmm. And I really tried to push the team to evaluate and help and use them in order to help us get the product that we needed and, of course, help them to mature their products. And we have adopted a few interesting technologies uh, over the years. And the last that was adopted, I started the process, it it was adopted after I left to start Reverse, was uh, a technology by Firebolt, which is uh, an amazing analytics database. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And yeah, it seems like that experience of like, you know, constantly evaluating vendors to bring them in adoption into similar web really inspire you to start your own entrepreneurial journey. And so since January of 2020, you have been the co-founder and CEO of Treeverse, whose mission is to simplify the lives of data engineers, data scientists, and data analysts who are transforming the world with data. Your team also built Legabest, which is an open source platform 
that delivers resilience and manageability to object storage-based data lakes. So can you share the story behind the founding of the company? We had a very intensive data operation at SimilarWeb. Since SimilarWeb started using Hadoop before I joined, so I think in 2011 already or 12, there was a lot of legacy when I joined, but using the right technologies. I, I joined in 2014. So this journey that I already described around the data technologies uh, made it very clear that while there were a lot of tools out there that can be used, there is also a lot of pain that has not been addressed yet. And when I decided I wanted to move on, the company just became too big for me. I am I'm not an enterprise person. And when communication started to revolve a lot around the politics of an enterprise, I stopped enjoying my work. This is why I decided to move on, although I love SimilarWeb and I'm very proud of it. And I love the team that I built there. After I left, one of the people who reported to me left as well. And he had that idea of Lake FS that we will talk about in a few minutes. And he said, yeah, let's start a company together. And I said, no, I'm not starting a company. I've just finished five and a half years of working really, really hard. I'm going to spend a year at the beach talk to me then. <laughs> and he was very smart about it. This is a very tricky guy. So he said, okay, just look at the design that I made. It's, it's a really cool design. Just give me feedback. <laughs> uh, just come with me to this meeting because, you know, they know you. So it would be very much easier for me to conduct the meeting. And so from one thing led to another and I fell in love with this idea he had. And here we are today. <laughs> so this is how it all started. You fell up with the idea of like a best initial design of, the, of that at the time, right? I guess in the past, you know, year or so, more than a year, it evolves to a variety of transformation. So I take a look at the documentation of like best and it is stood out that there are three main benefits that this project provide, which include development environment for data, continuous data integration, and continuous data deployment. So yeah, could you mind explaining the pain points of working with the data lake architecture and the vision that like a passage you up on? Yeah, so going back to, to the pains we had at SimilarWeb, at the end, we had this data lake over S3, and we were using uh, Spark, we were using Databricks, we were using Hive, we were using Presto, we were using managed versions of Presto, for example, Athena, we were using Redshift, you name it, we were using it. Because we had so many use cases of consuming data off, off the lake, and we really wanted to optimize the technology for the use case, we were using a lot of technologies and we loved the architecture. We thought it was the right architecture, but we still had a lot of pains around uh, the resilience and the manageability. So working over an object storage is error prone because let's face it, we are managing the data in a shared folder. And seven petabytes of data that are being used by 40 or 50 or 60 people in parallel cannot be just managed by permissions. Mm -hmm. Definitely not if you want to democratize the data in the organization and to allow as much insights to be gained from the data. So while we love the architecture and we really believed in it and we still do, we felt that there was a need for something that allows for man better manageability we knew the patches that we were using in order to avoid problems or to try and prevent errors. 
And we thought we could answer all those patches with one conceptual idea. And that idea was to allow Git-like operations over the object storage. And at the beginning, we really didn't put it in the words that you have now used. So we didn't talk about development environment or continuous data integration or continuous data deployment because we didn't know how to generalize the pains. But as we spoke to potential users, later on became users, we realized that those are the things that are missing from a use case perspective, that if we could only test our code or our pipelines over production data before implementing them into production, then our quality would be much higher and we would save ourselves a lot of the pains that we experience. If we can test the data continuously every day in a continuous integration mindset, it will solve a lot of problems of data quality and of missing data and of data not having the proper metadata, which means it's not in the right format or not in the right schema, or maybe has PII in it. All kinds of issues that, again, all kinds of organizations address in many different ways. But if you think of the paradigm of continuous data integration, it solves a bunch of those pains by simply having a good practice. Similar, the, the continuous data deployment and having LakeFS in production. So think about having a Git, but for your data in production, it means you can revert. You can easily return to the last stable state of your data in a synchronized way over all your data collections. A task today when done manually or done with scripts is extremely error prone and takes a long time to validate. With LakeFS, it's one atomic action that takes a few milliseconds. So you get the security of managing code on the data that you manage in a data-intensive application. Thanks for sharing those key benefits. Double-click on those. And I'll be sure to put the documentation in the show notes. So I think your team did an excellent job of like explaining all these key pillars of the platform. You brought up a very interesting point like in your answers. You try at the beginning when you talk to a potential clients, right, potential customers, and try to understand their pain point. At the time, it, it, it's hard to generalize, you know, those pain points into a set of features to develop. I'm just curious, like, what are the type of questions you actually ask them to extract those pain points? Because, you know, this is a very hard step for any startup founders, right? Which is like looting that on scale, right? Which is asking this kind of question to understand customer pain point. But like, what are some best practices that you learn from talking with these potential users and really like go deep into understanding their workflow and eventually generalize that into your solution? Yes, yeah, so I think the key point is really listening. So we talked to tens of people by now, hundreds, and we just listened. So what is it that doesn't work well for you? And some organizations start by saying everything works fine. But some organizations are, are more forthcoming with uh, sharing their problems. But even if with, with those who feel everything is working fine, when you dig in a little, then you see that, yeah, it works fine. It's not really efficient and it's very slow and it requires a lot of copying. And But we somehow managed to alleviate this pain. We invested a lot in it. 
So those were the two things we were looking for. Pains that required a lot of investment and are solved in an unoptimal way or pains that are not solved. Mm-hmm. People just feel those pains as they work every day. And as a lot of surveys show, 60% of the time is spent doing operational band-aiding around their problems rather than actually data engineering work that brings value to the organization. So the key is really to ask a lot of questions, to listen and to try to hear the pain. Because when uh, people extract their pain, they would be the ones telling you, you know what, I don't have a development environment. That's really my pain. Now that you, you dig in with me, This is my problem. I need to run two parallel pipelines to compare two things to decide which is better. I need to start copying data from production to two dirty buckets. This takes hours or days and, and it fails. So I don't have the same data in those two buckets and I can't really compare. And of course I can run directly over production. So it translates to this, I'm missing a development environment. So those interviews are priceless and we still do them. And I think we would evolve more and more in our language to understand the exact pain points that LakeFS provide very easy solutions for. Yeah, thank you for sharing those earlier story of uh, that process. Oh, always great to hear like some of those customer discovery code, how that actually manifests itself. This is why you build a community. The community of users are the community of people who share the pain, even if they're not users. are the ones who really help you nail it. Yeah, and we'll definitely talk about like the community aspect of LakeFS later on. First, I just want to dig into a couple of high-level topics that it seems like you've been writing a lot about. So data versioning is one topic that I'd love to discuss. So you have written before about explaining why data versioning as an infrastructure matters. Can you unpack the key points in that blog post for the uninitiated? Uh, Yes, so actually for us, data versioning is a tool, it's a means, it is not the end. The end is to bring the right workflow, the right application lifecycle to the work of data engineers. Now, in order to have that, you need to be able to version the data. But when you use LakeFS, you can decide how many versions, if at all, you keep of the data. depending on how much you want to revert or to get reproducibility. So when I talk about LakeFS, although LakeFS definitely does copy and write versioning of the data collection that it, that, that it manages, it doesn't do it just to version. It does it in order to allow the uh, branching, the committing, the merging, the use of pre-emerge and pre-commit hooks and so on to allow development environments and CI CD for data. And I think this is a very critical difference between us and tools that say, look, we've versioned this for your ML experiments because this is a very specific narrow need for the versioning. While the way we look at it, instead of looking at it vertically per application, We look at the problem horizontally and we say the versions are actually a property of the data. They're not a property of any application using the data. So if you have two teams that are actually analyzing the same data using different tools, 
they would need to be able to communicate about the versions of this data. So you don't want the versioning of the data to come from the tools they're using applicatively. You want the versions of the data to come from a horizontal system that provides them with workflow tools and enriches anything that they do with, with Git-like operations. And I think this is the key here, not to look at Git-like operations over the data or data versioning, again, as a means, not as an end, not to look at it as a feature, but rather to look at it as a horizontal property of the data that should be managed for the organization in a holistic way by one system. It's also very important for auditing, for lineage, and for governance over PII, mm. among other things. So you really want that done in a horizontal way. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Very interesting insight. Totally agree with you. I think all, all those parts about auditing lineage and governance are top of mind for a lot of organizations as you know, new privacy laws and, and security become more important. Just out of curiosity, why do you think no more tools that actually looking at versioning horizontally, why do they stick into a vertical mindset? I think those are tools are meant to provide a different use case altogether. For example, allowing ML people to manage their experimentations, including all the data and metadata related to the experiments. And then as a sidekick, they give a feature that provides data versioning because it is something that is expected by the users of this application. But they don't do it in a holistic way because it's a huge thing. It's, a, it's an entire system to have good state-of-the-art, high-quality and high-performance data versioning. Mm -hmm. So they narrow the problem down only to what serves this use case. And so it's a, it's a small side feature on something that is meant to provide something else. Which is, by the way, why we, we feel we're not competing with those tools. We're actually complementary to them. So use like a fest to ensure the, the safety and manageability of your data. And then use an MLOps tool over it to uh, enjoy the features that are required for a data scientist to manage the day-to-day -day work. Yeah, thanks for sharing that perspective. I would love to talk about more another topic, which is data mess. Data mesh is something that also get a lot of attention in the past, you know, one or two years or so. You wrote a blog post on like a best website about this topic. And so what are some of the challenges that organizations face when applying the principles of data mesh to their data? And are there any alternatives from data mesh that you resonate with? So I see data mesh as a good intuition to let's take the world of application development and try and just implement what we learned there in the last 70 years to data-intensive applications. And this is a sentiment that I really believe in and that I think LakeFS serves in a very good way. But taking data mesh down from this excellent concept to day-to-day -day work mm -hmm. is already very, very complicated. And I don't think there is a one solution fits all here. Mm -hmm. Just like, you know, everyone talks about microservices, but at the end of the day, every organization managed their services, not necessarily micro, in a different way with a different logic and a different consideration on why to 
creates a service. It depends on the business. It depends on the structure of the R&D. It depends on the talent density that you have. It depends on a lot of things. And, and, and of course, on the application itself. I think it is the same thing with data. While I do believe that uh, looking at things from an agile way is extremely important and cross-functional teams in data is extremely important. And having a data product manager or a product owner for data applications is also extremely important. I think every organization should take these concepts and just adjust them to their own needs, very much like agile development and microservices that go very well together are adopted in different ways in different organizations according to their need of the organization. I think the same should happen with data mesh. So I'm not sure I'm saying there is the monolith and then there is data mesh and I'm about to offer a third alternative. I think I'm saying there is a continuum here. Monolith is not always wrong, just as it is not always wrong in uh, software development. And uh, microservices and hyper-agile development is not always right and not always suitable. And every organization finds its sweet spot between those points. So the same should happen with data. But the data mesh definitely puts on the table the fact that we are not working with the best practices of software development when we are developing data-intensive applications. And there is really no reason why we would not adhere to those principles that serve us very well with software engineering that is not data-intensive. I really like your point about the continuum going from monoliths to microservices. And in my look, this how did that look the same for, for data-intensive application? I think it really depends on the talent, the data organization, the quality of the data, the type of application that they're trying to build, uh, even buying for leadership that allows, you know, the different data teams to move along that continuum. So absolutely love that nuanced take of how you view this concept. So the, the, the last person in the world that would give you a pitch on why to do a monolith, so not in data, in software development, I, I, that could happen. In some cases, it's actually a good idea. I know it's not fashionable to say, but it's true. I guess that you have a long career in working with a variety of software methodologies. So you can totally like rely on, on that experience, provide that input, right? Ensuring data quality in the data lake environment is another key value proposition of LakeFS. So could you mind sharing your take on um, a practical checklist for data quality testing? Yeah, so I did address that uh, also in a blog. As being a data scientist, scientist myself, I mean, it used to be called algorithms developer, but it is a data scientist. And as I told you, as I've learned in Compution, where I got my uh, foundations, quality is extremely important and understanding the steps of where and how to mind quality is extremely important. I think we, you need to look first at the level of the record itself. And it's best then to enforce quality at the point of collection and do as much testing as you can at the point of collection, because later on, if you do find quality issues, it's already a fact, it's a given fact that you now have a damaged record. But if you enforce, for example, in the UI where the data is collected, I'm just inventing a use case. If you enforce there the type or you provide a closed list 
and so on, those things help you really limit the options and make sure that the quality of the data that would be collected would be much higher. So there is a lot to be said about properly collecting data, either automatically or uh, manually, and how to design this collection. And when you go further in the pipeline, you would want to start checking uh, properties of data sets. Mm-hmm. And that should be done using statistical tests and anomaly detections and all kinds of very interesting things like that to see that if you have made assumptions about the statistical behavior of the data, uh, those assumptions are kept before you analyze the data or running an algorithm that actually relies on those assumptions. In a short answer for a podcast, I think those are two very important points. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll be sure to include the link to the blog post that you mentioned, data quality testing, way to test data validity and accuracy into the show notes so people can take a look at that. Actually, like in that blog post, you also mentioned a couple of the um, data quality testing frameworks that are currently existing in the market, ranging from DQ, Great Expectation, Excel Data, Monte Carlo, ODQ, a few of them. And I believe, you know, Lake has, has a plan to integrate with a few of them, right? As part yeah, of the a lot of them, actually. Just curious, like, um, can you share any details regarding those? Yeah, you know, the way I look at it, to get quality over an object, object storage data lake, over a data lake, you need a trinity. You need LakeFS to be the Git and also to manage the artifacts, which are the data sets. You need a very good testing platform. Either you develop it yourself or you use one of those tools. And you need an orchestration tool to allow you to just make sure that you run all those things uh, in the right way, in the right order. So what LakeFS provides in this picture is the isolation and the management of the artifacts. So if you want to first ingest data into a branch, then create a pre-merge hook that calls the testing tool And if the test passes, the data set is then merged into production. And then once it's merged, Airflow can call the first job, for example, that runs and uses this data set. Then you ensure that any data coming in and being used within your daily analysis was actually tested for quality. If the test fails, by the way, the data is not merged, the jobs will not run, And you will have, using LakeFS, a snapshot of the data at the time of the failure so you can debug the problem and understand what happened to the data and why the quality test failed. Um, So this is kind of a match made in heaven between LakeFS and all those quality tools that are out there. And of course, all the homegrown tools as well. Yeah, for sure. Talking about like, you know, this new integration and the future of the open source project at a high level, uh, like a best feature roadmap includes more support for, for more operators, different language clans, and uh, webhook integration. How do you prioritize product roadmap while developing an open source project? So here we're going back to the community. So we have users and we have users within the community, within our Slack, that provides us feedback, that asks for things, that want support for things. And we have design partners that we were working with day one who uh, helped us shape the need and shape LakeFS. And we get feedback from them as well. 
And we also look at our vision of where we want to be and what we want to provide the world. And together, we decide then on uh, what is the priority of things that need to be done. So we rely a lot on the community for this and its feedback. Yeah, that's a great answer. Quite recently, the team published a blog post on the state of data engineering in 2021. It includes a great visual of the data engineering ecosystem that covers major components such as um, ingestion, data lake, metadata management, compute, um, data science and analytics usability, and uh, organizational metadata. In your opinion, uh, what component in this ecosystem are still underinvested and challenging to grasp for data practitioners? So around metadata, definitely anything related to the Metastore. Everyone is using Hive or a managed version of Hive, and everyone is crying while doing that. Hive is, is uh, I don't know, I think would be probably the only uh, relic that would survive from the Hadoop ecosystem in two, three, four years, because nothing knows how to replace it better, but it is painful to use it and it's not scalable. It becomes very hard in a certain scale to manage things there. So this is a pain point that I think is currently overlooked and not enough is, is happening there in order to allow smooth work for data engineers. Uh, another place that I think uh, is only emerging is the quality category that we discussed earlier. All tools there are very, very young and this is just emerging now and we need to see how it evolves to really answer this very painful problem of ensuring quality in, in complex data environments. And I think, although not overlooked, compute that is always in the center of things would continue to evolve and bring us to new heights of capabilities. Yeah, absolutely. Those are definitely a great part of you, metadata management. Um, Another category I think is important to mention is the discovery category. I think in the last 18 months, Mm-hmm. Uh, 10 open source tools were uh, released to the world from very big enterprises that have discovery tools. And I think discovery is becoming um, a bigger problem in organizations because the amounts of data are growing in, even in smaller organizations. And the question, where is the data? Who owns it? What does it look like? How is it being used in the organization? All those questions need to be answered by a, a very good system that manages this metadata. So I also expect this category to continue growing and to provide this need that is currently starting to emerge also with the rest of the world and not only the large enterprises that contributed the open source. Yeah, that actually lends out very well to my next question, which is actually kind of go over some of your ideas towards and that blog post. You basically shared like the three trends, how the data engineering landscape might look like in the near future. Number one is manageability as a first order problem. Number two is the adoption of open source solution created by big companies. And number three is different means of tooling consolidation. So maybe can you uh, elaborate on these observation and predictions in further detail? Gladly. So uh, once upon a time, starting 2006, the problem was we've never seen that much data. And we really can't analyze it in a decent time frame, right? And then Hadoop came in 
and also improved dramatically over the years. And we started seeing a solution to that. Now there's Spark and there are, there are federated querying engines like Presto, and there is a way to handle those large amounts of data. And we believe going forward, those solutions would hold. Also, there are technologies to ingest large amounts of data in high frequency like Kafka. So all those basic needs of how do I even go about this, this is now solved in a different way. And then the next challenge is how do I work efficiently when all my environment is distributed, very hard to manage systems that are running huge amounts of data. And so from being something that you don't bother with because the basics are not working, now that the basics are working, this problem becomes top of mind. This is why discovery is coming in and quality is coming in and governance tools are coming in and tools like LakeFS and formats like Hoodie and Iceberg and Delta are coming in. All those allow better manageability of what is going on for us. And as a sidekick could also allow uh, virtualization or performance or other cool things. But the real reason they're out there is to allow us to manage ourselves better. This is a trend that is only going to increase because this is now the problem. Get it done quickly and in high quality. We know it can be done. Let's get it done quickly and in high quality. Regarding the adoption of uh, open source solutions, I'll call it the war of the gods. <laughs> and I'll mention two of the gods, although there might be three or four. But the two main ones would be Databricks. That would cover, by the way, both number two and number three in, the, in this section. Mm-hmm. So Databricks is offering an open source-based environment that you can pick and choose what you take from their solution. They give managed Spark, but they could also give you a lot of other things. But you can also take those things from other technologies and it would still all work very nicely together. Not necessarily in the best performance, but it would work. While Snowflake took the direction of we are going to be the one database to rule them all. And uh, it is a closed environment where when you work with it, it's very hard to work with anything else for the same needs. So they are taking a different approach. And then if the world consolidates, it's a question only whether it's going to consolidate to the direction of the open ecosystem or the closed ecosystem. And I vote for the open ecosystem. And I also practice uh, and try and offer a product for that ecosystem. Uh, Although there are and there always will be mixed environments that use both a data lake and an analytics database. And then you can see Databricks and Snowflake serving in the same environment. And hopefully LakeFS will be able to bring value on both. Yeah, absolutely. I think I really enjoyed that anecdote that you provided at the end, um, you know, the comparison between Databricks and, and Snowflake. I mean, both of these companies are in their own right, you know, have a massive influence on, on the rest of the data ecosystem. So. I think some of the best practices, uh, some of the practices that they have will certainly have a huge impact on, you know, vendors and the way, you know, they approach things as well, right? Actually, like at the end of that post, you also said that you see a parallel solution in MLO space where in the midterm, the ecosystem will remain fractured with tools satisfying the niche remaining successful. 
I guess the idea is like, you know, there are certain tools that tackle a very specific pain point during the ML development process. Those tools still going to be like profitable in the near term, right? I think the move to end-to-end solutions that are is offered by a few companies or too wide solution is way too early for. Mm-hmm. If I look at the world of, of software engineering and how time, how long it took it to converge to uh, good, really good and reliable tools that are universal, we're talking 30, 40 years. So clearly, of course, now everything is accelerated, but still I think it's too early for a domain that doesn't really know what it needs to consolidate on end-to-end solutions. And since different organizations have different needs and suffer from different pain points more than others, just like we talked about earlier with the data mesh, I believe they would choose the tools that focus on the pain that they believe is what is actually holding their business. And there would be room for those niche products to succeed and grow. And only later in the evolution of this ecosystem, the consolidations would come in. I guess another, another question that I'm curious to hear your thoughts on is as a startup vendor in, in the data analytics and ML ops ecosystem, you know, what are some of the strategies that, that you think makes sense for these vendors to play with each other? Should there be more collaboration between tools the way like Avast has been doing with Inequality and, and Orchestration 2 or should you know, be more competition between these vendors? I'm just curious about the kind of strategic mindset that you think you know, these, these vendors should have when this space is getting more mature in the near term. Yeah, yeah so I feel from a Lake Avast perspective, we are an enabler. So I don't see myself as a competitor. I see myself as bringing a, a valuable capability to everyone. Mm-hmm. All applications around us can benefit from having a good interface with Git-like operations over data. Everyone in every interface that calls data, reads it, analyzes it, and then writes it back would want to be able to open a branch to work in isolation and would want to be able to commit things for reproducibility, reverting things, and so on. So we feel we are an enabler. So from that perspective, we're not unseating anyone. Am I answering your question? <laughs> maybe like even what advice do you have for startup founders who like maybe create a new tool in this space? What is the mm-hmm. approach that they should take, you know, in order you know, to thrive and then compete in the ecosystem, for example? Yeah, so clearly I believe that open source is the way. I think the data ecosystem is really relying on open source and hence the model is open core. I see a few companies not taking that path and it's interesting to see how they end up and what is going to happen going forward with open source tools that compete with them. But uh, at least when it comes to data infrastructure, I think it is already a basic expectation of, of data engineers to be able to use something as open source. Mm-hmm. And it becomes then a basic expectation of enterprises to have a permissive license of an open source product to be able to start getting trust in a product before committing to uh, its paid version and its enterprise features. So the next layer after you have adoption of this as an open source and you, you really understand that you built something that people need is offer it as a managed service, which everyone really appreciates because you can never have enough data ops people. 
there is such a shortage. So if you can get something managed and relieve the, the need for them, that is always welcome and companies are, are interested in paying for that. And then, of course, over that, offer enterprise features according to the nature of the product that you are providing. So just use an open core model. That would be my advice. I, I believe that's the best way to succeed in the data domain. Yeah, for sure. And that actually transitions itself pretty well to my next a few set of questions. So let's take off your engineering head and put on your father head. Pricing an open source project is not an easy task. And you, you already mentioned that, you know, Trivers follows the open core model, uh, which uh, will add a commercial layer on top of the open source component. Maybe you already kind of like alluded to a bit in your previous um, answers, but like what pricing strategy that you think could be useful for open source creators looking to commercialize their projects? Yeah, so I don't know if I have anything to add to, to what I just said about this, right? So uh, listen to your to your users, uh, differentiate and understand what is a basic expectation they would want to see in the open source and what they would welcome as something that is paid. It's, it's very important to listen here and, and you would be surprised how people would very honestly tell you, yeah, that makes sense for me that I would pay for this, but it doesn't make sense for me that I would pay for that. Mm-hmm. And if you have a good community backing you up and giving you those tips, you would probably find the right way mm-hmm. to allow things that are paid. And in, during the evolution, you would always have to come up with new and better paid features because stuff would be contributed to your open source. And you, the open source would evolve towards what you have paid and you would have to evolve in the paid offering further and further more to uh, provide value for the money that you are paid. Yeah, I, I guess what you're saying is like choosing that pricing number is really based on like the value being provided to the users, right? And it's important exactly. to, to understand, you know, what are the different maybe layers of value and then you can determine the the, the optimal pricing number properly, right? Yeah, it, I think it's, it's always fascinating to like, how do you even choose a number to price our product? That is an interesting problem to solve, you know, for any enterprise product. Talking about this idea of community, which we kind of touched on at various points throughout our conversation, obviously like finding enthusiastic and passionate contributors is very challenging for any open source project. However, with close to 40 contributors, over a thousand GitHub stars and an active Slack group, it is clear that Trivers has put a lot of focus on community engagement for LakeFS. What are some of the hurdles that you have to overcome to find and engage the early commuters for the project? We have a project in Go, and apparently people are enthusiastic about Go. <laughs> so the way to go for us... <laughs> was to really emphasize that and and to turn to the Go community and say, look, this is an amazing Go project that you want to help us build. And it did work, but those are not potential users. Those are people who are enthusiastic about the technologies, but they're not data engineers. Data engineers don't use Go. They use Java, Scala, Python. So as the project evolved, we have shifted to, or not shifted, we have evolved to creating additional parts of the projects using those technologies, technologies that data engineers use. And then it was very natural for our users to contribute using the technologies that they know in the places where they were looking for things to be fixed or added to the project and using technologies that they use every day. I'd say go to the technology enthusiastics as a first step 
and then build the project in a language and in an architecture and using the technologies that your users use. And then they will gladly help you shape your product and, and contribute code. Yeah, that's a fascinating way how you bootstrap the initial interest by going to a very specific programming language users. Right? Hiring is another critical responsibility for any early stage startup founder. And I guess we talk a little bit about some of the lessons that you learned from management during your earlier time at Carolix, right? And even similar web. But, you know, like obviously like a startup is a very different environment that you have to serve to future employees. So what are some of the valuable lessons have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about Treeverse mission? Yeah, I think it is a combination of just knowing a lot of people throughout our careers. So me, my co-founder, and later on the employees that we have hired that are very experienced, so they are known by a lot of people. So all of us as a team have a very strong network of professionals that we can try and pull in to the company. And the second thing is really the picture about, look, this is open source. So this is a way for you to contribute to others and to shine, to show your capabilities. This is a masterpiece of, in data engineering that anyone can just, you know, look, go into the museum and look at this beautiful thing that, that you built. So uh, maybe museum is not a good analogy, but you get the point. So, so it is a work of art. And I think that it attracts a lot of talented people to be able to work on an open source project. So I think it's much easier for us than for startups that do closed source enterprise software. Yeah. And of course, we have a vision that we are very passionate about. And we think the entire world should be using Git over their object storage data lake and later on over all their data sources. So we're very enthusiastic and I'm sure it's sketching. I see. Yeah, it's a combination of personal network and the vision that you paint, as well as the trends in general of interest for improving that engineering quality, right? So all of those okay. come together, allows you to find the people who are already excited about it. Yeah. My last main question is talking about the data community in Israel. You, you know, spent your whole education career in Tel Aviv and in Israel specifically. So how would you describe sort of the state of the data community in Israel? So I think it's growing and it's getting stronger and stronger. And today there are already very strong data companies in Israel that educate data engineers and data scientists The need for data engineers and data scientists is also shifting to security companies that Israel is extremely strong with, to other verticals of high tech that Israel has contributed to the world, you know, in the last 30 years, because every, every company becomes a data company and Israel is very, very strong tech hub. So I think in the last five or seven years, we've made a huge jump and we are competitive with any data community around the world that, that you can offer. We develop technologies around data as an ecosystem. We are early adopters of technologies that come from all around the world. And we have data challenges that are cutting edge. Us facing them, the, the Israeli community facing them for the first time is something that the world would probably learn from, just like people learned from Silicon Valley. Yeah, I think that's an excellent answer. I mean, if you like someone who frequent like the data community online, you see a lot of startup coming on from Israel and a lot of founders even like origin from Israel who like go to the US 
or Europe or you know other places to start their own company. So it, it definitely seems like the entrepreneurial culture is huge in, in Israel. And I'm glad to hear your insider perspective on how the play out in, in real time. So you know, at this point of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment, in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions, and then you can give you know quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the data engineering universe whose work you admire. So first would be Ali Gotzi from Databricks, right? So as a representative of all the first Spark co-creators and the for Spark in general. Chaya Banon, who started the Elasticsearch and really advocated it all the way to every organization in the world. An amazing job by one man and now an amazing company. And Gwen Shapira, a developer advocate for Kafka that really, I think, was able to rally around a huge community of Kafka users around the world by her expertise in the Kafka internals and their both R&D and product abilities. So those are my three. Number two, name one book that you recommend for people to cultivate a better engineering mindset. Oh, that's an easy one. Designing data-intensive applications by Martin Kleppmann. I've given it as a present to so many people and I think If you ask in Israel what book Inat would recommend, everyone would say that this is the book. I've recommended it to thousands of people already. <laughs> I think at least four or five guests have recommended this book. So I think it's a common testament for the quality of the book. I'm halfway through reading it. So it's, it's very dense. <laughs> And then lastly, imagine that you send out a single tweet to all the early stage data engineers on Twitter. What could you tweet about? So there's a great uh, Richard Feynman quote where he says, what I cannot create, I do not understand. And I think this is a very important guideline for people starting with data engineering to dive in, do everything with their own hands, look at what drives the systems, the distributed systems that they're using, how things are influencing the way that they work and gain the maximum understanding that they can because it would serve them later on in being excellent at what they do. Fabulous. And I think that's a great way to end our conversation. I really enjoy learning about your educational background, studying mathematics at Tel Aviv, your various journey through doing algorithm development at different stages of your career and moving into the VP role later on at Crowlix and similar web, your motivation to start Treeverse mm-hmm. and the LakeFest project, variety of staff for discussion relating to data versioning, data mesh, and data quality as well as the state of data engineering 2021, as well as some of our discussions surrounding building a good open source community. So I'll be sure to include all of that into the show notes and listeners can have a chance to, you know, take a look and read some of your blog posts and check out Slack and the GitHub pages of LakeFS. And I really enjoy this conversation and I uh, look forward to see some of the future roadmap of the project and see how the company will play itself out in the near future of the data engineering ecosystem. So, yeah, I appreciate it and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your evening. Thank you very much. I had great fun. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.